Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. part three of the Joe Lumen series that we're doing here. Welcome to Confessions of Reformer. So if you have not listened to part one or part two of the Joe Lumen series, please go check it out. Joe has just, she introduces us to her world and the work that she's doing, the research, the discoveries, all things fascinating, challenging. All, so we're going to jump into it um, again, because it's a good time. I just want to get right into this. And I always want to remind you guys as a guest on my podcast, Joe has permission to say whatever she wants, however she wants to say it. And we all just get to deal with it. You know, we get to sort through what do you want to do with what she say? Um, okay, Joe, so we've talked about your journey. We've talked about uh, supremacy culture and the nervous system and uh, the Bible and theology and all these things. I want to focus the conversation. I want to get a little bit more specific about some of the things that have come out of your process and the things you're advocating for and you're educating people on. One thing I want to hit, just to make sure we touch this, we don't need to spend some time if you don't want to, but I do want you to be able to speak to this. What do you mean when you talk about decolonizing yeah. Christianity? Yeah, the idea of decolonizing is moving away from colonial ideas of things. But I take that even further, right? Um, so anytime that something is paired up with power and people co-opt and appropriate things to be able to use them for the purpose of exerting power over another, that is a way of colonizing an idea, colonizing, you know, taking for my use. I'm going to take it for my use and I'm going to use it however I want to. I believe that Christianity, I don't believe this, this is a fact, <laughs> uh, Christianity was co-opted and appropriated by the Roman Empire to become a weapon of oppression. And in that way, Christianity and many other um, throughout history, many other different theologies and many other different uh, spiritual beliefs were co-opted and appropriated by Christianity to be used as a weapon of power, to exert power over people. But that doesn't mean that theology, that doesn't mean that Christianity at the root of it is harmful and abusive, quite the opposite. So when I talk about decolonizing theology, I talk about what is theology going to look like if we strip it of these as a weapon, if we strip it from the idea that this is a weapon that is going to exert power but what how can it be instead the tool of liberation that it was always meant to be and so decolonizing theology decolonizing spirituality is moving away from spirituality and theology as a weapon of exerting power over another being if your theology if your theology if your spiritual beliefs do not make you a better person but instead are used to exert power over other people then you have a colonized theology Wow. Okay. That, that was so concise and impressed. And that's super <laughs> helpful. Thank you for sure. And that, yeah, it's kind of awkward a little bit as you talk, just how many things in my own experience with organized religion, Christianity, whatever. I'm like, oh, you know, there's like, I've gotten so much beauty out of this stuff, but this, some of this stuff is awful. And, yeah. you know, it feels dark and like harmful and like why. And, 
and being in it, you're just like, what is wrong with me? Why is this hitting me in this way as opposed to something that seems to be so? So you just finding language and like calling this stuff out and stepping out of it and being able to observe and critique like, hey, this is going on. I find personally like some of this just is so like accurate and helpful. And I'm like, yes, you're right. Oh my gosh, you're putting language to some of this stuff. I could not like this boogeyman that I could not name or, or find or acknowledge, but just have the bruises to, to prove like, yes, yeah, something's wrong, you know? Inside of um, toxic abusive ideologies, um, inside of um, supremacy culture, there is a lot of dualism. So you're with us or against us, it's good or bad. Mm it's black or white. It's, you know, like that, th those are the only options. And so when I say Christianity has been used as a weapon of oppression, people think, no, Christianity is good. I didn't say it's good. I didn't say it's bad. I just said it's been used as a weapon of oppression. And if you want to practice your faith in a way in which it doesn't cause harm to anybody else or yourself, then you have to consider the ways in which it's been used in a bad way. But that doesn't mean it's bad. It's, it means there is, there are a lot of shades of gray in everything. So when I, if talking about decolonizing requires that we meet everything, understanding that there is no good versus bad. There is just a lot of shades of gray, a lot of complexity, and Christianity is part of that. It's complex. You know, I, I also have a hard time with people that walk away from Christianity and are like, it's the worst. There's nothing good about it. And I'm like, well, then you're erasing a lot, a lot of marginalized people that have found in Christianity ways of healing, a lot of marginalized people that have found in Christianity ways of fighting for the most oppressed in society. You're erasing us all because a lot of the work that I do, I do because I am a Christian. So you're erasing me too. And so it's, it's complex, you know, it's not black and white and we don't have to keep aligning with it. If, if you don't think everything is good, then everything is bad. No, calm down. It, it can be both. Nice, awesome, okay. Um, so I, this is gonna be like a silly question, I'm sure, but I just wanna continue to advocate for people who are listening and maybe need some clarity or like lexicon translation and what have you. So when you use the word oppression, I know for a lot of people um, that word is politicized, right? And if you yeah. use the word oppression, then you're automatically gonna get roped under the left. You're just a raging liberal or whatever. And therefore the reticular system is activated. They can't even hear you anymore, right? You've just been disqualified and dismissed because you use the word oppression. What do you mean when you say the word oppression? I mean, unjust treatment, <laughs> you know? I mean, anybody that is treated unjustly um, is under oppression. So if we are talking about any rights that are given to you, but are denied to me, means that I'm being oppressed because those rights are denied to me. Um, so that's, that's what I mean by oppression. And we all can see that there is unjust treatment all over the world. Like this is not, um, it's really funny that people have a hard time with oppression. Like oppression is just a fact of where we are right now. People are treated unjustly for really ugly reasons. And we try to justify the reasons why we are, why they are treated unjustly because we are uncomfortable with their oppression because we know deep down that we are complicit in it. So that's why we are uncomfortable because we don't want to make peace with the people <sighs> complicit in it. Um, Joe, no, what, what, <laughs> what you just said right there, like I just went through like a, a year and a half, two years of that process. And I could not hear what you said right now before that, because I would have had to defend my complicit behavior, like things that align me with them. And so after I was able to like recognize and admit, like, you know what, I'm touching things, I'm using things, I'm benefiting from things that are actually corrupt, that are oppressive in nature. 
and I had to just like admit that it was awful because then I had to admit being a villain in this story that I was in, right? I've been the bad guy. My hands are dirty. This is awful. It was breaking, you know, a lot of emotion and pain. But through that process, I was able to actually start hearing clarity and a way to move forward and to bring healing and redemption to things that I was part of that were actually harmful to people. So many people actually can't hear what you just said because they're still complicit, but you're right. What you just described, we don't want to talk about it. We're uncomfortable. We defend against it because we don't want to face our complicity. Ah, because they see, and this goes back to dualism, because if I'm, if I'm not good, then I'm bad. So I have to defend this narrative that I'm good. I have to defend it to the death because I cannot be bad. Instead of recognizing that we're complex, we have the, the we, we can do both, cause a lot of harm and bring a lot of good. And we do both in our lifetime. We do absolutely both. But the, the better, like the more you know, then the less that harm that you can cause. That's why listening, people tell me, how do you know good versus bad if you don't have the Bible as the word of God? I'm like, first, if you go by the Bible, you do a lot of bad, a lot of bad, a lot of harmful things. You know, the Bible has a lot of like morality and you wanted to talk a little bit about morality too. The Bible has a lot of, a lot of morality that doesn't apply anymore. And if we, if we did, if we subjected everybody to the morality that is in the Bible, we'd cause a lot of harm. So uh, we have to move away from good versus bad and instead say, okay, let me listen to people that are talking to me. And if somebody tells me you're hurting me, it is my responsibility to say, tell me how, and I don't want to hurt you anymore. It is not my risk. Like it is wrong. It is abusive in nature to say, no, you're wrong. I'm not hurting you. And that's what we do often, right? I, I tell people a lot of Christian theology, a lot of Christian, what we call Orthodox, and I put that in quotation marks, Orthodox theology hurt me. This idea that people are going to go to hell, that my ancestors were in hell, that hurt me. It hurt me. And when people say, no, they didn't hurt you. Well, you're now denying my reality and denying people's reality is inappropriate and it's the behavior of abusers. So, but we don't want to hear that because we don't want to be the bad guy. What do you say to people who are hearing what you're saying and like, well, so then what our feelings just define what's true, right? I think people probably have that thought in response to what you just described, like you're denying my reality. They're like, oh, because so your feelings now get to define what's reality for people. Like, how would you speak to that thought yeah. process for people? Um, so feelings are neither good nor bad and feelings don't, feelings do define some of our reality, not all of it, but some of our reality. Uh, feelings are just what emotions are just the language of the brain. It's the brain telling us what's going on inside of us. So if I look at you and I say, I'm feeling hungry and you say, no, you're not. Um, uh, are you going to just say like, she's just not hungry and we're not going to let her feelings define her reality, but I am hungry. It's just a fact. Those are just facts. They are, my feelings are the ways in which my brain tells me what's going on inside of me. And if we're able to say, okay, let me sit with that and let's discuss it together, then maybe we can get to a better understanding of each other. Because see, I can look at my husband and say, well, you did hurt me. It hurt me. And he can say, help me understand how, which is what he does. Uh, these are the conversations. I'm literally telling you how our conversations go. I say, hey, when you said these, this is what I heard and it hurt me. And he goes, oh, okay, I, I hear what you say. I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you heard. This is what I meant. And I go, oh, okay, cool. And then we move on. But if I look at him and I say, when you said that you hurt me and he tells me, but well, you're being sensitive, then I'm not feeling seen in that interaction. I'm not feeling heard. We don't have a relationship. He's using me to feel better about himself. That's it. 
that's all he's doing. That's there is no relationship in that. Um, so yeah, do feelings determine are feelings good? Yes, they are. And I know that inside of evangelical theology, we're told not to listen to our feelings because there is some words in the Bible that have been taken out of context to make people believe they don't get to listen to their heart because the heart is deceitful above all things, right? Jeremiah. Uh, but that's not what that verse means. That verse is not talking about we don't get to listen to our feelings or our feelings are deceitful or they are bad. What it is saying is it's talking about how it's ancient people trying to explain the difference between listening to your trauma and listening to your true self. Because traumatized people are trying to protect themselves is what I told you with your brain. Our brain is trying to protect us. So many times people are saying something and I'm going to receive it because of my trauma in a certain way. So I have to ask myself, am I receiving these? Am I behaving in this way? Am I doing the things that I'm doing to be able to bypass my trauma and not deal with my trauma? Or is this really a desire of my true self? Let me give you one more tangible example so that I can explain this better. Uh, I had to sit with myself and recognize that I liked preaching a lot, not because I liked preaching per se. I'm a good preacher, but I didn't like preaching per se, but I liked what people clapped for me because it was a way of me feeling like I was valuable because growing up, I didn't feel valuable. So when I preached that people clapped for me because they thought that I had this very good insight from God, I felt like I was valuable and I didn't have to deal with my feelings of inadequacy that came from my childhood trauma. I still like preaching, but the reason I do it now, it's because it's part of my job, but it doesn't help me with my feelings of inadequacy. It's not a way of bypassing my feelings of inadequacy because I face those. I actually have worked really hard and I have done a lot of work to find that my, my worth is not tied to the things that I do. My worth is intrinsic to myself. So we do a lot of things in life that we justify because of our trauma. So we get married because of our trauma, even though some of people don't want to get married. We enter into relationships because of our trauma, even though we don't wanna be in those relationships. Some people have children to be able to appease their trauma. Some people demand that their children behave in certain ways so they don't look bad to others to appease their trauma. But if we just looked at ourselves in the mirror and say, I'm appeasing my trauma and I have got to stop doing that, then we would be understanding what the Bible says when it says your heart is deceitful above all things. He's talking about how we tend to appease our trauma and appease our pain and find ways to go over and move over our pain instead of facing it and looking ourselves in the mirror and calling bullshit on our own self. Wow. <laughs> I'm like covering my face from the shock. <laughs> I'm Joe, I, I just want to slide an award across the table. Like you're shocking me, which is um, I think that's that's uh, that's not easy to do. So nice. Um, I wanted to ask you to unpack when you say appeasing our trauma, I know what you mean. I just want to advocate again for people who may be like, okay, what does that actually entail? What do you mean by appeasing our trauma and like connecting that to our heart being absolutely wicked? Like, can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So we all have trauma. Trauma is what happens inside of our body when we don't feel safe. So the moment that you lose safety and that's happens, that's happened to all of us in different ways. Uh, the moment that you don't feel safe is your body is having this experience inside that is considered trauma. Trauma is not bad or good. Trauma is just a fact of life. The difference between being able to handle trauma with appropriate tools and not having the appropriate tools to handle trauma is humongous because when we are a small child and we lose safety, for instance, your parent is angry with you and they yell at you and your brain says they hate you. So you better behave really well so that you don't abandon you. 
um, you that trauma becomes the narrative of your life. If you don't behave really well, you will be abandoned. You are not worth of keep. You're not worthy of being kept around. And so, if you don't have parents that are able to sit down with you and say, "I'm so sorry that I yelled at you. That was inappropriate. Um, how are you feeling? What are the things? What are the what are the stories that you are telling yourself about yourself?" That's a question I ask my children often. What are the stories that you're telling yourself about yourself? Um, and you are able to navigate those things with your children, then that becomes your reality. And everything you do growing up moves around these narratives that you've believed about yourself that are rooted in trauma, insecurities, societal conditioning, different things that, you know, like when, you, when you're told your whole life, you're too sensitive, you're too sensitive, you're too sensitive, you're too sensitive, then you learn that nobody can handle your emotions and that you should hide them. That's trauma. And so when we have the appropriate tools to be able to handle our trauma, we're able to change those narratives and we're able to say, that's actually not true. The truth about me is this and this and that. And we're able, it takes time. It takes a lot of brain rewiring um, and it takes a lot of consciousness. It takes a lot of becoming aware and conscious and being thoughtful about like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why do I believe that? Where did that come from? That's, that's the one side. And then the, the other side is we are absolutely unaware and we're living in our subconscious mind. And living in our subconscious mind is just acting out on those beliefs that are not rooted in reality, but are rooted in ways in which our body and our brain interpreted certain things. So that's living in your subconscious mind, which, you, which plays a part in your implicit biases too. You are told things about yourself and you are also told things about the other. And so you live in your subconscious mind, not questioning the things that you've been told about yourself. And listen, if you read the Bible understanding all of this, you see that the invitation is to consciousness, is question your beliefs, question the things that you are told, question the things that you've been conditioned to believe about yourself. Like don't trust your emotions. It's not really not trusting your emotions, but don't trust these unconscious, subconscious narratives that are not serving you are not rooted in reality at all. That's what I'm talking about. And the alternative is to say that, to do the work of saying, wait, what is, where, where did that come from? Where is that belief from? And the priority in the grand scheme of things of doing the work of facing our trauma, of understanding it, bringing our consciousness to that place and rewiring you know, our process, all that. The reason we do that is because it is helping us become aware of the systems of oppression that we're empowering around us, the oppression we just bring to people around us. Right, and the impression um, that we have subjected ourselves to. Because see, uh, the biggest oppressor of ourselves is us. I am the meanest person to me. I'm the meanest to myself because I've been conditioned to do that. Uh, and meeting myself with compassion, meeting myself with care, and seeing myself as the Christ, seeing myself as an extension of divinity in the world is hard, hard work. But it's the invitation. To me, salvation is that. To me, becoming divine, becoming the Christ in the world is becoming so deeply aware of my humanity uh, that is also so very riddled with my divinity. And as I do that, I cannot look at another without seeing the divinity too. So it's, it becomes impossible to dehumanize another because I've humanized myself completely. So I look at the people that I've been told to dehumanize and I see their beauty in them, you know? And I, and I invite people to not dehumanize anybody. Uh, I, I, then I, I remember language about Donald Trump and people would get mad at me because I'd be like, please don't speak about him that way. They were like, you're defending an abuser. I'm like, no, I'm defending a human. Don't dehumanize. You, we can, uh, we can hold people accountable. We can invite them to do better without dehumanizing them. He's not trash. His behavior is harmful. 
And if we are so, if we become so very aware of our language and the ways in which we dehumanize others and ourselves, you're an idiot. How could you do that? You know, becoming aware of all of those things that we tell ourselves and we tell others is bringing heaven on earth in small ways. Every single heaven on earth is not going to happen tomorrow. Heaven on earth happens every second of the day with small, tiny choices that become big changes throughout history. That see, because the way that I treat myself affects the way that my children will treat themselves too. The way that they see me talk about myself, the way that they see me talk to them is changing their reality. They will be humans, adults that have better tools than I ever did, which means that anybody, their descendants, whether biological or not, will be better and way further along than I have ever been. And that's it. That's that's the legacy that we leave behind. Wow. Yeah, come on. Okay, because of the sake of time, I'm going to move us forward. I have a couple of things I want to hit with you before we're done. So good. I mean, I'm getting hit. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Joe. Um, I wanted to talk about, oh, there are two big things I want to talk about. And then a, like nine other smaller things that we I might need to just make my peace with and let go. One thing I wanted to bring up here was, can you contrast for us the difference between ethics and morality and how you see the evangelical church participating in that space? Yeah. Yeah. So morality is really an ancient idea, but morality is just, they are societal norms of right versus wrong. Societal norms that a group of people have agreed upon. Uh, and they make sense within the context of that group. So for instance, it was immoral for Europeans to wear little to no clothes or to have women's breasts out in the open. It was immoral for them. That was immoral. That was something that they, they agreed upon. It was an agreement that they made, but there was nothing intrinsically unethical about that. So indigenous people had their breasts out and they didn't think much of it because it was hot and they had different rules for their own societies. They had just different rules. And so is the case for a lot of things. So it's immoral for some people to eat certain foods, but for some other people, it's not immoral. You know, so we know that there is haram food and there is kosher food, but for Christians, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. So they are just, morality are societal norms shared by a group of people that they have agreed this is bad or this is good for us. Whatever the reasons behind that are irrelevant. The bottom line is that they are societal norms that a group has agreed on. Now, morality varies according to different individuals, cultures, time, uh, depending on the things that we know, the more that we know, the more that our morality changes. But ethics are not necessarily that. Ethics are guiding principles of conduct. So ethics, the, the question of ethics is, is this causing harm to anybody? Because if it's causing harm, it's unethical to do it. It's unethical to do something that causes harm to one individual or a people group. Uh, so when we're talking about a lot of morality of Christians, a lot of Christian morality that evangelical, let me be specific, a lot of evangelical Christian morality is also unethical. And that's really hard for them to hear because what they say is, well, it is in the word of God. So let me be clear. The treatment of LGBTQ people might be moral to evangelical Christians, but it's unethical. It's causing harm, telling people that they are sinners and not acceptable because of their identity, because part of their identity is just being gay or bisexual or whatever, uh, is unethical. It is no different than me telling you that you are wrong or you are a sinner because of your mustache. Like, you know, it's just, <laughs> or because of, because you're a man, 
you're a man. So you, it's unethical. You know, it's just wrong to be a man, period. It's the exact same thing. And so if we are able to say, okay, how much harm are we causing with our theology? How much harm are we causing with our moral norms that are arbitrary? You know, these moral norms are arbitrary. Then, then the conversation becomes more interesting. So in the conversation about ethics, we are not talking about you steal, therefore you're immoral. We're talking about why are you stealing? Because if you're stealing because you're hungry, that is the ethical thing to do. The unethical thing to do is to punish you for keeping yourself alive. That's unethical. Um, so the conversations about punishment and the conversations about justice become conversations that are nuanced and more complex, right? Because we are not talking about this is right and this is wrong every time for always and ever, but we're talking about, no, we have to actually understand people's situation, right? Um, we have to understand why people are doing what they are doing. And if you know anything about um, your brain again, you realize that a lot of people don't cause harm to other group people because they are bad in nature, but because there is something underlying there. So then it becomes like, how can we address that? It's not behavior modification anymore. We're not asking people, if you do these four things, then you are good and acceptable by God. That's morality. Morality is this set of rules. Do these things and then you're good. Ethics is instead consider the way in which you're living, given the tools that you have, given the context in which you are, and make sure that you don't cause harm to other people. Make sure that harm is absolutely minimized everywhere you go. So when we're talking about even, oh, this is too complex. I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, then we have to talk like lying. I, I give this example often. Um, I, my kids don't get in trouble in my house for lying. They don't ever because children don't lie because they are bad. Children don't lie because they are evil. Uh, children don't lie because they wanna deceive you. Children lie because they are afraid, which means that it is my responsibility to check why they are afraid in my presence. It's my responsibility to apologize for them because I don't make them, they don't feel safe enough to tell me the truth. So when my children lie, the question I ask is, please let me know, how can I make it so that you feel safe telling me the truth? And I'm sorry that you're not safe with me that you can't tell me the truth. Um, that changes, right? Because that's ethical behavior. But punishing my children for lying when they know that lying is the way that they stay safe around me is doubling down on abuse, actually. So the conversation between morality and ethics matters a lot because morality is ancient, shallow conversations about interpersonal relationships. It's just behavior modification. It's, it's ancient ways of existing with one another. But we know much better now. We have a lot more information now. So we can have conversations about harm. And for that, we have to listen to people, especially those most marginalized. We have to listen to them. We have to have conversations about what can make this better. And we cannot decide alone what can make it better. There is no one authority that can say, this is what we're gonna do. And it's gonna work for everyone. We have to decide together. Uh, so I don't know if you knew these, but most chocolate that we consume today is made by um, children that are enslaved. They are, they are enslaved making this chocolate. So is it ethical or unethical for me to buy the chocolate, you know? So we're having deeper conversations. We're saying these people are being harmed and should we punish them? No, we should definitely hold these companies accountable and say, what are you going to do to ensure that these people are getting paid a fair wage and that you're not employing children? 
Now, but the children have to work because the situation in which they are requires for them to be able to work to survive. It's not on them, it's not on their parents, most certainly, which people tend to blame. Uh, it's on us too. Then we become responsible for more things if we're talking about ethics. It's ethical for me to challenge notions. It's ethical for me to stand with the most marginalized. It's unethical to protect corporations over humanity, over humans. Um, so that's the difference between morality and ethics. Evangelical Christians are very concerned with morality. Uh, the conversation should be about ethics. Wow, very helpful, thorough, robust. My gosh, amazing, thank you. Okay, I wanted to ask you, this is another big one, especially for the evangelical Christian side of things. I wanna ask you about obedience. Yeah. Right, because <laughs> obedience to God, if you love me, you'll obey me, right? This is such a huge value in Christianity is to obey God. And even, I just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so obedience is a complex word uh, because obedience, as we understand it today, which is blind submission, uh, I'm sorry, not blind submission. I shouldn't use the word blind because that's not, um, obedience is unquestioned submission. Um, that is not exactly what obedience means in the Bible. And that is not exactly what obedience means as the, the, the root word of obedience didn't mean that. The word of obedience in the Bible, both in Hebrew and in Greek, was more a conversation about listening intently. So it's listen intently, consider, be diligent, be attentive. Um, so when I talk about like, and then the conversation about how the Holy Spirit and how we have this divine thing inside of us that is speaking to us. Some people call it the Holy Spirit. Some people call it the higher self. Some other traditions call it the intuition, the wisdom within. Different traditions call it different things, but we're talking about the same thing. Um, so we talk about the Holy Spirit because we're talking to Christians. And the invitation is listen intently to the Holy Spirit. And there we have to go back to the conversation of trauma, right? Because it's, are you doing the things that you're doing? Are you behaving in the ways in which you're behaving because of trauma, because of insecurities, because of societal conditioning, or is this really, truly the Holy Spirit speaking to you? And so that is the invitation of obedience. So if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's more, if you love me, you will take the time to consider. You will li diligently listen to the divine within you. You will take the time to um, consider the ethical implications of your behavior. And, and in these, morality doesn't work anymore because morality is just behavior modification. It's not if you believe me, if you love me, then you will do what I tell you to do, these four things. It's not that. It's if you love me, I want you to sit down with the things that are being presented to you. And I want you to carefully, carefully consider them. So obedience is not really about um, do what I say just because I said it, just because I'm an authority over your life, you're gonna do what I say. Because that removes agency from people. That removes their individuality. That removes their ability to actually engage the divine. Um, but instead, as a mom even, I, I don't want my kids to simply obey me, you know, which makes parenting really hard. It's easier to just demand that they obey me. But if I demand that, I, that they obey me, I am grooming people to be able to be abused by narcissists later on in life. But instead, if I'm raising people that sit down and consider, if I say, consider what I'm saying to you and tell me why you don't agree. And my kids can, they all can say, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't agree with that. I don't like that. And I say, well, why not? Let me explain why I want you to do this. Let me explain why I want you to participate in this. Um, and they still can say no, because they are individuals that have agency, uh, you know, and it's, it's complex with some things, but for the most part, it really works. Um, so 
the invitation of the divine, because if you believe, however, whatever your beliefs are of the divine, this is not an authoritarian mean, you know, do what I say or you will be smitten. And if that's the God that you believe in, let me tell you bluntly, you believe in an abuser as your God. And it's probably just a projection of an abuser in your life. But divinity is gentle. And divinity is just an invitation to become the most authentic version of ourselves. Divinity is an invitation to bring heaven on earth, to love people well, to care for people well. Um, that's why I believe that any church that is not caring for people well is not a church. It's just a business trying to exploit people uh, by using God. And that's that's actually the literally definition of blasphemy. Um, so, you know, obedience then becomes this more beautiful and nuanced thing where it's an invitation to be in relationship. It's an invitation to sit down and I wanna to listen to you, but I demand that you listen to me too. And we're gonna to talk together because some of the things that are going to be easy for you to do because of my past, because of my own experiences, because of my trauma may just not be that easy for me. And we move at the pace that is safe for each one of us. Pushing people into spaces where they don't feel safe doing things, it's not helpful. Uh, we, we instead invite them, what is, what is how far are you, how far can you move into these safely without shotting your entire nervous system? And so that's the way that we move. And so the invitation is a conversation, it's relationship, but um, unquestioned submission is oppression in itself because it's not considering people, it's not considering what they are feeling, it's not considering how they are uh, being treated. It's exerting control over them and saying, do what I say. That's it. That's it. That's that's oppressive in nature. Uh, I am I am unjustly treating you just because I have some sort of authority over you instead of listening to you. So I choose to view the divine as someone that invites me to listen and to consider and to meet with them, uh, but not as this authoritarian do what I say or else. There is no beauty in that. There is no individuality in that. There is no free will in that either. Wow, amazing, thank you. Okay, I think we have maybe time for one more minor subject for you just to like speak to. Um, I think it's so fascinating. Um, and I know, again, this is another word, like oppression that can come across politicized to certain people depending on their political affiliation and the people they're listening to. But I am fascinated by your how you talk about this subject. So I'd love for you just to hit it in whatever ways we can in the time we have. Um, the word is privilege. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. We all have privilege. Uh, and privilege is ways in which we've been able to be given a pass. Uh, and our, our life hasn't been any harder because of these things. So privilege doesn't, what I want is for everyone to have privilege, not to remove privilege from others. So privilege are the ways in which your life has been made easier because you have these things. Um, so I'm gonna give you an example of privileges that I have. I speak, I speak more than one language, including English. Speaking English in the world is a privilege. It opens doors for me. It makes my life easier in the world. Um, should that be the case? No, but it is, it is what it is. It is what it is right now. Uh, being a man gives you privilege in the world still. There are a lot of people that because they are men, they have access to spaces and access to things and access to having a better life because they are men. And the easiest way to point to that is not only the the wage gap um but just look at christianity you know like how many women can be lead pastors we can't be in a lot of traditions in most traditions women cannot be lead pastors um our bodies are 
politicized in different ways than the bodies of men. Um, so things like that, people that have money have privilege. Money is a really easy way of seeing privilege, right? You have accessibility to all of these things that other people don't have accessibility to. Uh, people that live in certain countries have privilege that other people don't have. And the first time that I traveled with my husband, um, he learned a lot about his own privilege. He's white, he is 6'2", 200 pounds, blue eyes with a blue American passport. And he was traveling with his brown, five to a wife with a Colombian passport. And I got stopped everywhere. So we, we travel internationally, we travel everywhere and I got stopped everywhere. They had to check me twice. They had to open my bags all the time. I was asked to get x-rays often, x-rays of my uh, abdomen often. I was asked to go into a different room. My bags were punctured a lot of the times. It was like, people are making holes into your clothes. And I was like, yeah they don't do that to you? And he's like, no, Joe, this isn't normal. And I was like, oh, I thought this was everybody's experience traveling. Like you got stopped everywhere and asked questions everywhere. And he was like, no. And this was prior, I mean, this was happening to me prior 9-11. After 9-11, it just got worse. Um, but he didn't know. So I remember one time in Mexico City, I was moved into another room and I was held there for two hours. Nothing was happening. They just sat me there with a whole bunch of other people for two hours until they could interview me. But he wasn't allowed to walk into the room. So he was outside waiting for me, freaking out because he couldn't get into the room. He didn't know what was happening with me. And I was like, yeah, this happens all the time. Like I've missed flights because of these things. Um, that's privilege. His blue passport is privilege. The fact that he's a white man and therefore the implicit biases collectively of people are that he's safe, that he's good that he's good looking. Um, all of those things are privileges. People that have ideas about certain body types, you know, being skinny opens doors for you. Um, so th those are little, little privileges. You know, it doesn't mean that your life is without issues. It doesn't mean that your life is without problems. It means that certain things about your identity are not reasons why your life is harder. Um, so I recognize my privilege. I have a lot of privilege. I am, I have Higher education is a privilege in the world. Um, I live in California. I am married in a heterosexual marriage. Uh, all of those things are privileges that I have. And I am middle-class, I'm not poor, poor. Uh, all of those things are things that open doors for me and affect the ways in which people view me. They, they make people put their guard down in front of me. And I don't have all of the privilege. So when we say that a white, cisgender heterosexual man that is middle class or higher has a lot of privilege in the world. What we mean is that most people are not going to have bad implicit biases about them because of who they are, because of their identities. Quite the opposite. They are the acceptable person in the world. They are, you know, so they are given leadership things and they are given opportunities and doors are open for them because of those identities. And nobody's saying we want to take those away from them. We just want everyone to have privilege. That's it. Nice. Cool. Thank you. Okay. Listen, because of the time, I know you got to go. So I want to just wrap this up. I want to say a couple things. First of all, thank you so much, Joe, for coming on my podcast or my show whatever, and sharing this, sharing your thoughts, sharing so freely. Um, and then beyond that, thank you for the work that you're doing in general, regardless of my involvement. I am just so thankful for the, the work you're doing, the willingness to trudge through this, the, re the countless hours and years of research you've had to do to get to the conclusions you've come to and like really look at things and be brave and step outside of what most of us are willing to just like stay comfortable within.
to find where is this coming from? Why do we, you know, that takes work, like labor, you yeah. know, and whatever, and, and courage, and just like having to also carry the stigma in our culture of being different than the majority. So thank you for doing the work that you do in general. Um, I so admire what you're doing and the impact you're having on the people that are getting to receive from you. Um, as you as you're teaching and speaking and stuff, there's just such a an advocating liberating thing about what you're doing you're fighting for people to have freedom to be cared for to be treated as decent and have relationship with and regarded and like what other display of the gospel do we want to see than these kinds of things being advocate right so i just want to just take a moment to celebrate who you are in the world and what you're doing and for carrying the gospel in the way that you do manifesting the kingdom i'm sorry i'm not sure what verbiage you would use for this but no, I, just... I love it that's great thank you that. <laughs> yeah totally so i just i so respect and admire and appreciate the work that you're doing i'm honored that you've come into my world to share this with all of us um and just want to continue to just champion you and say what you're doing is good and please keep going thank you thank you thank you, thank so, you so much i really appreciate it and your language is perfect i am a christian because all of these things resonate with me and Jesus was called a heretic and Jesus was called blasphemous and Jesus was not liked by the elites. Uh, so I'm comfortable there too. Nice. You're in good company. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, you guys, any questions, whatever, you know how to get hold of us. Thank you so much for joining us. Go follow Joe. Jo. She's on TikTok. She's on Instagram. You're on Facebook too, yeah? Yeah, and Twitter. Yep. And Twitter. So go find her, go follow her, you know, support her, listen to her, whatever. Let her challenge you, let her mess you up. Joe, you're amazing. Thank you once again. Thank you guys for listening. Hey, just wanted to chime in real quick. Listen, deconstruction is not for the faint of heart. It takes a lot of work. It takes resilience. We probably need some help around us, support to keep us from going crazy. I totally get it. So if that's you, I wanted to let you know about a couple of solutions available over in my world in case you needed some support or help along your deconstruction journey. So first of all, I want to make sure you know about NUMA Plus. We have a deconstruction series that's available on there where I help with some intro dialogue, some questions to be asking, some things to consider, some talking points, some teaching that can hopefully help answer some questions, maybe provide some questions, hopefully validate and affirm your own process, but ultimately just to be there to support you in this journey but then to an even greater degree, I have a mentorship group called Ashes. This is specifically for people who are deconstructing. Most of the people in this group have been people who were raised in Christianity, who have been cultured in a community of faith, have a deep value for God and love and truth, but have recognized that there's a system of oppression in the church that we've had to divest from, that there are ideas in the theology we were raised in that are actually not serving us anymore and are actually really harmful to the world. And that's a lot of things to have to sort through and detangle and things to separate and not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? I get it. So if that's you and you would love some support and be with like-minded people going on that same journey, Ashes is for you. Join us. The links are provided below. I know Joe has provoked a lot of things in this episode. I want to make sure you don't feel like just splayed open. There are answers, there are solutions, there's help for you. Thanks for checking this out. I'll see you next time. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.